Fellowship. What is fellowship? Meaningful interaction between one believer and another to the extent that both benefit as a result of the encounter. That's fellowship. That's my working definition of fellowship anyway. And we're going to be talking about fellowship today, next Sunday, then the following Sunday, Matt Miklos will be here. Then the next Sunday, and I'll be in Poland, and when I come back, continue to talk about fellowship for a while. Fellowship. There's a young family in California. They really had hit upon hard times. They had about four kids, and they had very little money. And it was, they were desperate to make a break and get back to Idaho for a vacation with their family, to go to their parent, parents' home and so forth. But there was no way. No way on earth their little van would carry them that far. This was one of those old vans. Some of you remember when vans first came out, you actually sat on top of the front wheels. Remember those old vans? That's one of these. And it was a mess. There was another guy in their church that had just bought a brand new car. Wasn't even a month old. And he heard about their plight. And this guy wasn't well off either. He had one car. He went to them and he said, I know you need to get back to Idaho to see your family. I want you to take my car. Well, they protested. They, they no, we can't do that. He insisted. So they took his brand new, not a month old car, packed it full of their kids and their luggage, and made their way to Idaho. Now that meant that for the next 10, 10 days to two weeks, the guy who loaned them the car had to drive their van. That's a little picture of fellowship. Meaningful interaction between one believer at least and another believer to the extent that both benefit as a result of the encounter or the experience. There's a girl that's going to Stanford University. She was a Christian girl. She got involved with a guy. She made a moral mistake. She sinned. She became pregnant. She was shamed but the church ministered to her, reached out to her, helped her to understand the gravity of the situation. She was very repentant. And they worked with her. She was all alone. The guy took all the pleasure, but none of the responsibility in their encounter. She couldn't go back home. They cared for her. When her baby came, a celebration broke out in the church. That, too, is a picture of fellowship. Meaningful interaction between believers to the extent that people benefit as a result of the encounter or the experience. There's another guy that was struggling with lust, and a friend of his noticed it. And he lovingly, tactfully sat down with him, allowed him to admit it, and then encouraged him with how to deal with it, and promised his prayer. That's a picture of fellowship. These three pictures share with us or give us the attitude among Christians that is to consistently seek means of finding itself or expressing itself in tangible ways. That's fellowship. What we're talking about is how to live life here below with those we know. You've heard the little limerick. I've shared it with you, in fact, before. Oh, to live above with saints we love. Ah, that'll be glory. But to live below with saints we know, that's another story. 
Sometimes, unfortunately, it's that way. Because we're all tempted and yield to the temptation to live down to our humanity instead of up to our potential. When we're living up to our potential and we're spirit-led, spirit-filled, and spirit-controlled, we engage in a life of fellowship with other believers. There are four things that need to be balanced in our life. You're probably getting sick of hearing this, but that's okay. I'm going to tell you again anyway. It's so vital. There are four things important in our lives that need to be in our lives and be in balance in our lives as individual Christians. The same four things need to be representative of the church at large. So you have representation corporately and you have representation individually. What are those four things? I'll help you remember them if you can't. Spell the word WIFE. And you have an acronym for what these four things are. Worship. Letting God know of his worth. Attributing worth to God. Worship, as I understand it, is an old English word. came from worth-ship. Attributing worth to God. Instruction. That's the I in the acronym. Instruction. Careful exposition or explanation of the Word of God with equally as careful application of the Word of God. We need to do this in our personal lives. We need to be students of the Word. We need to be in the Word. We need to do this corporately. That's why in most evangelical churches that I know of, Sunday morning is a paramount time to break, forth, break open the bread of life. And our preaching is biblically based because people need explanation and application of the Word of God in their lives. The F, as you have already heard, has to do with fellowship. Meaningful interaction between believers to the point that they benefit as a result of the experience or the encounter. And then the fourth is E-expression. It includes evangelism, but it also includes what I would call pre-evangelism, it's doing anything in the world in Jesus' name so that others can see who Jesus is. It's giving verbal witness, but it's witnessing by the way we live as well and what we do in the lives of other people as well. These four things are so, so critical. So where we're going to be hanging our hat in the following weeks has, is, is with this thing, this issue of fellowship, which needs to be represented in our life personally and it rep needs to represent the life of the church corporately. Rozumiesz? Polish. Do you understand? Get it? Got it. Let's go. Where do we start when you start talking about fellowship? What does this meaningful interaction look like? You'll find in the New Testament a little word that's translated in two words in English. You'll find it at least 15 or 16 times. And it's the word alelus. And it's translated one another. And you go a long way toward understanding what fellowship looks like and how it behaves when you begin to capture the idea behind the one another statements. There, as I say, there are 15 or 16 of them. Things like, be devoted to one another. Bear one another's burdens. Confess your sins to one another. Instruct one another. Live in harmony with one another. Honor one another. The one we're going to camp on today, and I, well, let me give you the whole list. Honor one another. Encourage one another. We're going to come back to that one. Forgive one another. Love one another. Bear with one another. Serve one another. Restore one another. Pray for one another. Accept one another. Submit to one another. All of these things are vital. So today we're going to start by talking about what it means to encourage one another. 
How to practice the fine art of encouragement. How do we know when we're a good encourager? We generally know when we've been encouraged, but how do we know when we are an encourager? We can go a long way toward answering that question when we take a look at one word and how it's used in the New Testament. The word is parakaleo, and it's variously translated. But it breaks into three points, at least as I see it this morning. We are encouraging when we are exhorting others in the family. A word about the word, the verb exhort. It's not used a lot today. I haven't had anybody come up to me for a long time and say, let me exhort you, brother. You know, just, it's not a very commonly used word. What does it mean to exhort? Because it's, it's a biblical notion. What it means, literally, according to the Oxford Dictionary, is to urge or advise earnestly. You may want to write that down. To urge or advise earnestly. We're to exhort others when, even before they're in the family of God. Somebody says, wait a minute, that's evangelism. You're getting mixed up here. What does that have to do with body life? Well, nothing and everything. I mean, let's be careful not to develop a hardening of the categories and make things too sealed off from each other. They interpenetrate one another. Worship, instruction, fellowship, expression are like interlinking circles. They interpenetrate one, one another. Without exhortation among unbelievers, there would never be a body of believers. So we need to think in terms of those who do not know Christ. Why should we exhort others who are outside the family? Let me give you four reasons. Based upon the word, parakaleo. We exhort others because God works through us. All of us are familiar with the notion, Christ in us. It's a wonderful concept, and it's an exciting reality to know that Christ lives within me. But an equally as exciting notion is Christ working through us. Paul says, this is what we are once we're in Christ. And what God dares to do through us is very exciting. We are, Paul says, Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his, notice the word, appeal through us. The word appeal is the word exhort. Or parakaleo. It's the way it's, it's, uh, it's rendered in that particular context. God advises earnestly through us. Think about it. We just did a simple little exercise, but some of you were encouraged by what was said to you. God may have been advising you earnestly through someone here this morning. And you, you know, this can happen even when you're not sure of, that it's happening. I have a sister-in-law, I may have told you about her before, she worked on a kibbutz in Israel. She worked on several kibbutz. The kibbutzim are a collection of collective farms in Israel, and many times they're staffed by young people, college, career-age young adults who go to work on the kibbutz. She went over there. She happened to be a Christian. Most all of them were not. In fact, some of them, on the, the life can get pretty wild on the kibbutz, morally, immorally, and et cetera, et cetera, drinking and carrying on and so forth. And you're not allowed to proselytize. You're not allowed to evangelize. So there's my sister-in-law, as a Christian, working on the kibbutz, but living her Christian life, and she couldn't say anything much about it. 
But even so, God used it. People earnestly, or God earnestly advised other people through her lifestyle to the point that some were coming to faith in Christ without her even saying much, if anything, about Christ. She wasn't allowed to. Now, I'm not suggesting that we not verbalize our faith, but I am suggesting this. There's something about our life that's captivating if we're living for Christ. Once we're in Christ, we can get caught up in the passion of this thing. I want you to listen again to the Apostle Paul. He says, as God's fellow workers, I urge you, that's the word parakleo, I earnestly advise you not to receive God's grace in vain. So, we exhort others for a reason. You know what? Could I have um, an outline? I have last week, a couple weeks, outline from a couple of weeks ago here staring me in the face. No wonder it didn't make any sense. I'm, I've just, I just referred to it as I'm going through my notes to see, you know, forget it. Um, this is the order of worship. I don't need that either. How to become... Oh, no, no. All right. Once we're in Christ, as I say, we can actually get caught up in this thing. We exhort others because when we do, God works through us. We exhort others because it's pleasing to God. Listen to this verse. For the appeal, that's the word parakaleo, by the way, for the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. We speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to praise men or please men, but we're trying to please God. Notice the words. The appeal, the, the earnest advisement that we give does not spring from error and pure motives. Get it? We exhort others because the Holy Spirit encourages us in doing it. Listen to the experience of the early church after it had been fiercely persecuted for sharing the gospel. We're told in Acts chapter 9... It was strengthened and encouraged, parakaleo. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It was earnest, the church was earnestly advised, exhorted by the Holy Spirit. Now catch this, if you will. The word for encourage is parakaleo, but here's what I want you to see. A word used to describe the Holy Spirit is paraclete. Same word family. Paracleto, paraclete. The Holy Spirit is considered the paraclete, one who is called alongside to help. So here's the beauty of this. One called alongside to help, the Holy Spirit comes alongside us. And the result is that we are encouraged. He, the Holy Spirit, encourages the encouragers. Incredible. Really incredible. We exhort others because the Holy Spirit encourages us to do so. We encourage others because of the example of those who've gone before us. Listen to John the Baptist, or listen about John the Baptist. And with many other words, John exhorted, earnestly advised the people and preached the good news to them. Listen to the Apostle Peter. With many words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, Pericleto. He earnestly advised them. And about 3,000 were added to the church in that day. 
So you want to practice the fine art of encouragement? Kindly but decidedly exhort others, earnestly advise others toward the kingdom. Now here's a few things to be committed to so we can do this well. Let's be sure to do it whenever, wherever, and however we may. Believe it or not, and a lot of you are not going to believe this, but this is true. There are many people who would just love the chance to know more about God if they only knew that there was somebody they could talk to about it. But they somehow perceive many times, they don't, the, the person I would talk to doesn't know any more than I do, so why bring it up? But if they find somebody who really knows God and can answer some questions they have about God, they'd like to know. So let's be sure to do it whenever, wherever, and however we may. Secondly, let's be very sensitive to base our opportunity on their receptivity. You've heard of people who've worn out their welcome by cramming the gospel down people's throats. We don't want to be that way. But we can measure whether they're receptive or not. We can measure whether they want to hear or not. And then judging on that, we know what we can share, how far we can go. Thirdly, I would say give them as much as they're ready to receive. This has been my own personal orientation. I try not to force anything on anybody, but I try to... I ask, actually, I ask permission. If you've been in the classes we've taught on evangelism, you know this. I've asked permission. Could I share something with you that might be of value to you? Would you like to know more about Jesus Christ? If they say no, I back off. But I want to be ready to share, to earnestly advise someone who doesn't know Christ about the fact that they can know him and their life can be changed forever. We're to exhort those who are not yet in the family. We're also to exhort those who have responded to live accordingly. That, that is, we're to exhort believers. Why? Well, we do it in order to strengthen them. Exhortation is something we all need in order to grow. Helping others is a prominent theme in the New Testament. Listen to some examples. Barnabas with new Christians in Antioch. He encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He earnestly advised them. Listen to Paul. He's describing one of his missionary journeys. They, dis- they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them, earnestly advising them to remain true to the faith. Listen to what is said after that miraculous jailbreak recorded in Acts chapter 16. They went to Lydia's house, those who were re- released from the jail, where they met with the brothers and, what they do? Encouraged them. They earnestly advised them. What about the, uh, the, the time they had a riot in Ephesus because they'd shared the gospel? Paul says afterwards, Paul sent for his disciples, or it said of Paul, I'm sorry. Paul sent for his disciples, and after encouraging them, earnestly advising them, they said goodbye. In each case, who was encouraged? Analyze this with me. Who was encouraged? The young and the faith were encouraged. Those going against family traditions were encouraged. Those bucking the cultural tide were encouraged. People entering a completely foreign environment, formerly irreligious people, even outright pagan people, were encouraged. Not like many in our day. Not unlike many in our day. We'll find those kind of people amongst our, the people that we know in the church as well as outside the church. We need to earnestly advise people. We need to encourage people. We need to exhort people. People. 
Logic, not to mention similar experiences among many of us, tell us that encouragement from us is a very, very appropriate and timely thing. I've shared this story maybe too many times, but I think it gets the point across. I'd like to share it again. It's like each of us have uh, within us a cup, not a physical cup. You can't see it. If a doctor opened you up, you couldn't find it. But in our spirits, we have this cup, which is supposed to be filled with self-esteem. There's a big open top to it where you can pour in all kinds of self-esteem. It has a plug in the bottom of it. Some people's orientation in life is to run around and unscrew the plug in your cup of self-esteem and empty you of all sense of self-esteem or self-worth. That should never be the orientation of a believer. We should be affirming people, building people up, encouraging them, exhorting them, earnestly advising them. That's a privilege, to be sure. Let me read this to you. This is cute. Everybody needs recognition for his accomplishments, but few people make theirs known quite as vividly as this little boy did one day when he said to his father, Daddy, let's play darts. I'll throw, and you just stand there and say, Wonderful. (laughs) He knew what he needed. He needed someone to affirm him. So, we encourage, earnestly advise, exhort, in order to strengthen people. We also do it in order to give direction. If you notice the exhortations in question are not rebukes. They're not stinging, stingingly confrontational or critical. There's a time for that. But these are of a gentler kind, although the purpose is the same. And what is the purpose behind this kind of exhortation? It helps people take their stand. Listen to the Apostle Peter. I have written you briefly, encouraging, there's the word, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God, what he'd been saying to them. Stand fast in it. It helps people to know how to behave appropriately when we encourage them like this. Earnestly given advice, encouragement, makes the day for a lot of us. I remember when I was a new Christian. You know my story. I've shared it many times. I was in, in Wisconsin, had come from Ohio, from my home, to my grandparents' home in Wisconsin. About three days in, I came to Christ, and for about two and a half weeks following, I was involved in a crash course on how to live the Christian life. It was God-ordained. He knew I was going to need that kind of encouragement. Had I just become a believer and jumped on the train and gone back to Ohio, I don't know what ever would have happened. But I had two weeks of orientation Two weeks of boot camp, if you will. Two weeks of solid encouragement on how to live the Christian life. And then I had all sorts of letters following that up as well. That's what it takes to help each other grow in the faith. It's almost like a fine art, this thing. The more we work at it, the better we become at it. So here's some tips on how to do encouraging well. Be tactful. Lead with love. Secondly, reinforce positively, not negatively. There's a lot of negative reinforcement we receive. We don't even have to look for it. It'll come our way. We should be about reinforcing people positively. Be careful not to push merely your own ideas or our own ideas as though they were the gospel, but let's have a biblical base for the direction we're giving people. 
And then let's not avoid being directive. I mean, I know there's a lot about counseling that says you should help people discover for themselves what they need to do, and I believe that, but I think there's also a time to be directive, especially when we see the need to guide and we understand before us they're standing a teachable moment. So we're encouraging when we are exhorting others in the family. We're also encouraging when we are consoling others in the family. Exhortation and consoling are not mutually exclusive. You can see their connection clearly at times. Hebrews chapter 12, listen carefully, for both exhortation and comfort in these words. The writer of Hebrews says, you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. And here's the encouragement. My son, do not make light the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves and punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Did you hear the connection there? Don't lose heart. Positively put, take heart. Take heart. That's consoling. It's, it's, there's exhortation there to be sure. There's, there's, uh, there's earnestly advised counsel there to be sure. But there's encouragement there. I mean, there, there's, uh, there's, there's something positive there. There's consolation there. The, 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 um, the obvious is that both are needed sometimes. And we need to take care not to do the first, exhort severely, without doing the latter, giving hope. Exhortation gives direction. Consoling gives hope. You want to practice the fine art of encouragement? Be a hope giver. The Lord only knows there are so many people in our culture who need hope. They need to be shared. They need to have shared with them genuine hope. Giving hope and comfort are major ingredients of encouraging. In part, giving hope and comfort are why we have the scriptures to begin with. Check it out with me. Listen to Romans chapter 15. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance, and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Then listen to what Paul says to the Thessalonians. May the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. It's a grace that God gives. But notice, if you will, God delivers it through us. It's ensured in our prayers. It's delivered through carefully chosen, hopeful words. Want to practice the fine art of encouragement? Again, console people by giving hope. I tried my hand at defining what hope is. See if you agree. Hope is when we see that God is not absent in the present and that he is in control of the future. If you can help people understand that, you have done a lot. Hope is when we see that God is not absent in the present, and that he is in control of the future. So, we know we are encouraging others when we are exhorting others in the family. We know we are encouraging others when we are consoling others in the family. And we know we're encouraging others when we, were, we are action-oriented toward others 
in the family. To be action-oriented means to be committed to certain specifics, namely certain activities and certain events. One specific, and catch this one to be sure, one specific is to pray. Paul knew the effect of prayer. And he generously thanked those who prayed for him. We never do a person a greater favor than to pray for them. Think of what happens when you pray. You gain the ear of God on behalf of somebody else. When you're praying for somebody else, you're gaining the ear of an eternal, infinite God on their behalf. That's powerful. Powerful. Another specific is to just be there. You think that may have been something to Paul? Well, listen to what he says one, at one time in his ministry. God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. Someone was there. Just being there can be such an encouragement. Let me read something to you. Jean Nidecht, a 214-pound homemaker desperate to lose weight, went to New York City Department of Health, where she was given a diet devised by Dr. Norman Joliffe. Two months later, discouraged about the 50 pounds plus still to go in her diet, she invited six other overweight friends home to share the diet and talk about how they could stay on it. And today, I don't know whether this is as up-to-date as it needs to be, but this says today, 28 years later, over a million members attend 250,000 Weight Watcher meetings in 24 countries every week. Why? Why was Nidek able to help people take control of their lives like this? Listen to her story. When she was a teenager, she used to cross a park where she saw mothers gossiping while their toddlers sat in their swings and no one was there to push them. The mothers were too busy visiting. She said, I began to give them a push. And you know what happens when you push a kid in the, on a swing? Pretty soon he's pumping and he's doing it by himself. That's what my role in life is. I'm just here to give people a push. Isn't that great? What are we here for? Give people a push. To encourage. To be action-oriented in their lives. You want to practice the fine art of encouraging? Take action like praying, like being there. To be action-oriented means, means to be committed beyond what is specific as well. Here's another definition I coined. I think it's helpful. Encouragement is an attitude, looking for ways to serve. Encouragement is an attitude, looking for ways to to serve. It's a whatever-it-takes outlook on helping. We see it in the life of a man like Barnabas. He was, his middle name was encouragement. He was known as the son of encouragement. You want to practice the fine art of encouragement? Adopt an attitude which says, what can I do when you see somebody else in need? What can I do? Not Tough bounce, you got it hard, see you later. No. What can I do? There's a poster statement that goes something like this. 
Don't be bothered by what other people think of you, because when the truth is known, they seldom do. Is that correct or not? In our fast-paced society, is that not descriptive? I think it is. But it must never be true in the church. It must never be true among those who want to conscientiously follow Christ. May no one ever be able to say that of us here that we don't care. God, let us be healthy when it comes to encouraging, exhorting, earnestly advising others, consoling them. Help us to be action-oriented in their life. So here's a simple assignment. Three points. Let's look at those within our circle of influence. And let's choose one or more that we can encourage. Simple, but it can be very, very effective. Secondly, let's determine in which way we'll go about it. Exhorting them, earnestly advising them, consoling them, or being action-oriented in some other way by participating in their lives. Let's determine in which way we'll go about it. And thirdly, let's review the practical tips that have been shared today, and let's use them. You can get a tape of this message. We're sure of that. Sorry about last week. That was a bad one to miss. We had a glitch in our system. But the audio tapes are available. And if you're serious about, one, about being an encourager, I would suggest you maybe re-listen to this, because we forget a lot when we walk out the door. You can ask me on Tuesday what I preached on Sunday, and I'll have to say, um, let me think. But I'm old. <laughs> What's your excuse? Let's be healthy. Let's practice the fine art of encouragement. We can do it because the Holy Spirit's there to work in us and through us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your life in us through Jesus Christ. And we thank you for this little one another statement that we should encourage one another. Now we ask that you'd help us to be a source of encouragement to those around us. And may we receive the encouragement others want to bring into our lives. Whether it's through exhortation or consolation or some other action-oriented vehicle they may choose to use. Help us to be strong in Christ because of each other. We pray this in Jesus' name.